Over the past uh, 12 years, we've had the privilege of helping start uh, 24 different churches in under-spiritually resourced areas around the nation, places like uh, Portland, Oregon, and Las Vegas, and Denver, and uh, Manhattan. And uh, from time to time, we like to uh, bring some of the guys in that we've been working with to start these churches that are making an impact in that part of the United States so that you can just put a name with a face and also catch some of their excitement and some of their heart. And we are privileged today to have Sean Sears, who is in partnership with us in establishing a church in Boston and is now mentoring our new church planter uh, that will be launching a church uh, in 2015, a second church in the Boston area. Would you give a Lake Point welcome to Sean Sears? How are you guys doing today? How about them Cowboys? Huh? I was hoping Dallas would get a professional football team one of these days, and uh, you did. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I am, I'm really glad to be here. I appreciate your church. Uh, you guys have uh, made a difference in our lives in, in New England. Uh, your pastor's invested a lot of time in us, but he's not the only one. Uh, different people on your leadership team, people like Wes Hartley and uh, Rick Burge and different people like that have um, spent a lot of time with us, helping us work through different uh, problems, helping us grow, helping us get better, connecting people who are distant from God to faith in his son, Jesus. Uh, some of you guys, I believe about 50 different people have come up to Boston and help us different summers with, with uh, movie nights and different outreach events that we did, so I want to say thank you to you guys. You make a difference. And for all of you guys who are involved in giving regularly uh, through this church family, uh, that money doesn't go into a black hole somewhere. That, that's actually leveraged for the glory of God and the good of others that you'll never, ever meet uh, people that, uh, well, my neighbors um, who've come to faith uh, in Jesus as a result of the way that you guys give to God generously through this church family. So I just want to say thanks. I'm happy to be here. I'm probably the most uh, accidental church planter Lake Point has ever partnered with. Uh, I didn't uh, start a church on purpose, uh, <laughs> which doesn't, uh, you don't believe me because who starts a church by accident? Um, I did, I'll tell you about it in just a second. Most of the things about my relationship with God uh, were not on purpose. Even me going into ministry, I never heard like an audible voice of God. I'm not one of those guys who prays, you know, and then gets up and, you know, why, you know great drops of blood sweated from my brow in prayer. I'm not that guy. Uh, I was a ninth grader at youth camp, and uh, this guy named Frank who is, lives somewhere here in Texas. <laughs> it's a big state, so I don't know if I'm going to find him or not. Uh, but Frank was speaking at this youth camp that I was at in ninth grade, and he was doing David and Goliath. And so when he was doing Goliath, he was standing up on a chair, and when he was doing David, he was on his knees on the ground, and, and I, I just died laughing through the whole thing. And then I was like, is this, what does this guy do for a living? And they're like, he's this. And I'm like, holy cow, you can get paid to do that? That would be awesome. Dear God in heaven, I volunteer. You don't have to call me. I'll do that. I'd love to spend the rest of my life telling people about Jesus. So that, that's kind of the way the whole thing has, has been for me. I was a youth pastor in, in Denver, and the idea of starting a church uh, what, you know, wasn't something that was really on my radar. I had a couple of friends who'd started churches uh, in, in, you know, actually these two particular friends of mine in, in um, uh, San Francisco. And uh, so I was intrigued by what they were doing, but I didn't think that that was something that I would ever be a part of because that's not my skill set. Uh, as a youth pastor, I can pull out uh, all-nighters like crazy. Like, I, I am awesome at uh, overnighters and hayrides. Like, that's my skill set. 
Um, um, I, I can take a gross joke to the gospel in about eight minutes. That's another part of my skill set. Uh, but to like be a church planter, to me, you've got to have like a seminary degree. You've got to be super organized. You've got to be disciplined. You've got to be all like, like super spiritual. You've got to like pray like all day, every day. You've got to be all those things that I'm not. So as a youth pastor, I wanted to be a better youth pastor. So I, I started getting a, a, a degree in education. So my, my grad degree, not even from a seminary, uh, it, was, it was to write curriculum. And during that process, I was invited to Boston uh, to teach uh, like a one-week lecture series uh, out there at a Bible college. And what I didn't know is after I got out there, I found out halfway through the week that it was a job interview. Uh, so the guy in charge of the college was interviewing me to start a youth ministry program at the college. And so, you know, the, for my wife and I, it was, you know, what's better to be the youth pastor of 100 people or to train 100 youth pastors to be the, you know, to, to, to lead a, a 100 kids. And so for the sake of the glory of God and the good of as many others as possible, it was to train. So we moved out, out to Denver, excuse me, from Denver out to Boston. But even then, I'm breaking down in Sandusky, Ohio, which has nothing good in it except for Cedar Point. That's the only good thing in Sandusky, Ohio. And I looked at Billy Jane, uh, that's my wife, uh, my wife's name is Billy. I always, when I first time I say her name, I always have to say Jane, because if I say I love Billy, it comes across different. <laughs> um, <laughs> I married a chick with a dude's name, which is cool because she don't look like a dude. Can I get an amen? Oh, all right, thanks. Appreciate the backup. We're broken down in Sandusky, Ohio. Now look at Billy Jane. It's like the third time we broke down in this one particular rental company that I don't recommend that I probably shouldn't say out loud, but they're orange. Um, and I look at Billy Jane. I say, you know what's really scary? She goes, what? No, I've already quit my job. We've, we've uh, sold our house. We've, we're in a move. Everything we own in this truck. I said, I'm still only 70% sure we're doing the right thing, and, uh, which I probably shouldn't have said to my wife broken down on the side of the road. But she's a godly lady, and she said, if we're doing the wrong thing, at least we're doing the wrong thing for the right reason, and I think God will bless that. And uh, that, that was, that's just what I needed to, to get back in the truck and keep going. But we moved into the, uh, I thought we wanted to live in the city, uh, because if we ever did start, you know, a church, it would be, like, in the city, because that's, like, cool and sexy to be, like, starting a church and like, you know, down, like, downtown Boston. That's, like, for, like, that's what I thought. But we couldn't afford anything that wasn't a crack house that smelled like cat pee. So you think that's a joke. There's an actual story about that house that I don't have time for. Um, my wife almost left me and walked away from Jesus and everything good, and it was rough. Uh, so we ended up in a little town called Stoughton outside of the city. It's like Mayberry, except more dysfunctional. Everybody knows each other. They just don't like everybody. Um, but it... Anyway, we love our town, and I, I just was Sean the professor. Sean the professor is a safe guy. Sean the guy, Sean the church planter who's trying to start a church in his living room, that dude's a cult leader. He doesn't get invited to nothing, right? So Sean the professor, I get invited to, I've been to seven bar mitzvahs. <laughs> How many of you guys can say that, right? That's kind of cool. Um, and uh, so I'm on the, I was on the school council at my kids' school. I'm on the uh, Little League board in town. It's a lifetime board membership. I don't know how I got that. Some of my buddies who have multi-generational residents in that town, how in the world did you get that? And I'm like, I have no idea. Um, I want to say the hand of God, but I don't want to freak them out. Um, my wife's in the PTO, and, and uh, it just so happened that 
three or four years into it, I was a Christian uh, kid, I mean, raised up in a Christian family, went to a Christian church, my dad's a preacher, my wife's dad's a preacher, she was raised in a Christian school, we went to Christian college, my entire life was spent in a religious bubble. Everybody I knew pretty much believed the same thing I did about everything, and for the first time in my entire life, none of my friends believed anything what I believed. And I had been told that people who weren't followers of Jesus, they can't really be happy, but that's a lie. They can't really have good marriages, but that's a lie. They're some of the most amazing, awesome people I've ever met in my entire life. And I absolutely loved them. And I knew somebody would need to come and start a church. It just wasn't going to be me. It's not my skill set. So I called all of my buddies who did have the degrees, who were organized, who were disciplined, and none of them would come and do it. And my wife said, oh, Sean, maybe God already sent somebody. And I'm like, who, is that? who have I not thought of? And she's like, maybe it's us. And I'm like, you're smoking crack. <laughs> I use the word crack in sentences. It can't be me. Right? <laughs> Church planners can't say that, right? Um, so we prayed and fasted over this particular Saturday and Sunday, and by Sunday night, God hadn't said anything, and I was hungry, so skip this. <laughs> right? It don't work. So God didn't, I guess no, nothing is like, are you in there? Right? I starved myself for two days. You should say something. Um, so I, as, yes, no answer was my answer, and on Monday, my neighbor, Tiffany, across the street said, Sean, are you a minister? you're a minister, right? And I'm like, kind of, I tell gross jokes, <laughs> and then talk about Jesus, and she said, well, you know, she talked about a friend of hers, and, and I accidentally slipped out, I was reading a book on church planting, and then I was like, oops, you know, I don't want to think I'm leading a cult, and uh, she caught it, though, and I said, well, I don't know if you know this or not, but Billy Jane and I are praying about starting a church next year. She yelled back to her husband, hey, Glenn, Sean and Billy Jane are starting a church next year, now we've got a church to go to. But that went right over my head, because I already thought God had said no. So, I think, so I'm still like, God, just give me a sign, any sign will do. <laughs> Anything, you know. Um, Tuesday, a dude walks into my office at the college and says, hey, if you ever start a church, I want to be a part of it, I'll help out. I'm like, random, don't forget your homework. Right over my head again. Wednesday, exact same thing. Another kid doesn't even hang out. The first kid said the same thing. On Thursday and Friday, nothing happened on my end, but on Tiffany's end, my neighbor across the street, her friend had attempted suicide, and on Friday, she visited, him, visited her. On Saturday, she knocks on my door, and she says, hey, Sean, a um, friend of mine attempted suicide on Thursday. I visited her on Friday, told her she needed God, and that my neighbor knows him. Would you go tell her about God? And I'm like, sure. Now, dear Jesus, would you just give me some kind of sign, anything, <laughs> Right? <laughs> I told you, I'm not the dude. Uh, somebody else would have caught that a long time ago. Sunday night, we're in the hospital, and my spiritually disconnected, unchurched, non-religious neighbor says to her friend in the exact same spiritual condition, you need to be in a, in, uh, in a Bible study. If Sean and Billy Jane started a Bible study in their house, would you go to it? And she goes, yeah, if you and Glenn will go. She goes, okay, Sean. <laughs> my wife kicked me, and then God zapped me in the hiney with a lightning bolt. But see, it was still three more months before we started the Bible study, because I was scared to death. Like I'm, I'd, I had an idea in my mind what it looked like to be a follower of Jesus, and who were the types of people who could do things for Jesus and who couldn't, and I was in the who couldn't crowd. Because of my background, because of my personality weirdness or whatever, I just, I, I can't be that, because in my mind, that was that, and I was, does that make sense? Like, I'd... I had disqualified myself already from being the type of person that, that, that God would use, and I'm thankful that God can use and will use and actually prefers to use the kind of people that everybody else would not use, you know? 
Uh, we're going to look at a story in the Bible about two guys e e exactly like that. Can I tell you something really cool? I've always tried to be an intentional neighbor. It just never worked anywhere else I ever lived. Um, but Billy Jane and I put a little piece of paper behind our front door and wrote a square where every house was and started putting in people's names when we first moved in. Now, that's no list I would have ever shown anybody. That would have been creepy. But um, <laughs> just for us to get to know all of our neighbors, four years before God ever moved us to start a Bible study in our home, Tiffany and she just kept bringing friends and kept bringing friends and kept bringing friends and that's, that's how our church got started. But here we are today and what I wanna tell you, now I had never seen this coming, but Glenn and Tiffany across the street have come to faith in Jesus and are baptized at Grace Church. Bim and Mary who live right behind us at Grace Church, following Jesus, baptized at Grace Church. Carlos and Michelle, Caddy Corner behind us. Across the street, three doors down, David and Michelle Massarelli. Across the street next door. Savannah Gardner, and I told Billy Jean that when the rest of our neighbors right here and right here began following Jesus and are baptized at Grace Church, we got to move and start all over. And she said, no. I was smoking crack. Pastor uh, Steve last week started in Matthew chapter 5. Today we're starting in Matthew chapter 8. If you've got your Bible, please turn there. Here's a cool thing about this story that's, that's in the Bible. It's in three different places. Uh, now, there's a few things that I, I, I really appreciate about, about biblical Christianity. One of them is that it's completely unique from all the other major world religions. All of the world religions pretty much boil down to the same thing, that a good God lets good people into a good heaven, or their version of a good God, their version of good people, and their version of heaven where biblical Christianity is completely unique from all the other world religions, is that its biblical text says that nobody is good. That's the difference. God is good, and because he is good, he can't wink away things that are bad. I mean, think about it. If you've ever stood before a judge, and hopefully you never have, but if you have ever been in court and stood before a judge, he wasn't interested in how many hours you volunteered candy striping since the last bank you robbed or your last DUI, God forbid. All he wants to know is if you are innocent or guilty. A judge who would let guilty people go free because they volunteered a local hospital, you wouldn't say is a good judge, you would say he's a crooked judge, am I right? So why we would expect God, why would we expect God to be, hold us to a lesser standard than what our elected judges would hold us to? Does that make sense? The other thing I appreciate about it is that the Bible, is it, our biblical text, isn't a book of religious principles that we get to decide whether or not it works for us. It's a narrative. It's the story of the way that God has interacted with mankind. And these things either really did happen in history or they did not. And it doesn't really matter if it works for you or not. If Jesus rose from the dead, then bro, he's God. Now, if he didn't, it doesn't matter. None of this matters. But if he did, then it doesn't matter whether or not it works for you. If Jesus rose, that's a matter of history, not religion. You know what I'm saying? So when it talks about the different things that happen, they're rooted, they're rooted, I said that weird, they're rooted in, in time. 
and there and in actual locations that we can verify uh, and that's another thing I appreciate this is one of those stories and because it's written in three different places in the Bible uh, we get a fuller picture of it it's kind of like if I was gonna have somebody stand up in the front section and I was going to write a one paragraph description of them and you're sitting behind them and you were gonna write a one paragraph and, and you were sitting beside them and you were gonna write a one paragraph our one paragraph description of that person would be different would you agree but they wouldn't contradict they would complement does that make sense this is one of those stories where the details seem so dr drastically different that I had a hard time reconciling them. And in fact, the story that we're looking at today is one of the reasons why I struggled with whether or not I should believe in the Bible at all. Now, in all three accounts of this story, there's a gigantic storm that makes fishermen scared. Now, if it makes fishermen scared, that's a big storm. Like, get me scared on an airplane, that's one thing. But if the stewardesses start swearing, now I'm really scared. Are you with me? All right. So if the fishermen are grabbing the sides and puking their guts, that's a big storm. And that's, that's exactly what was happening. Jesus gets up and he says, peace be still in all three of the accounts. And right after that, they find themselves on a beach. And that's where we pick it up in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. When Jesus arrived on the other side of the lake in the region of the Gadarenes. It's Gadarenes. Say it with me. Gadarenes. Good job. Two men who were possessed by demons met him. How many men? How many men? Two men in Gadarenes. They lived in a cemetery and were so violent that no one could go through that area. But we're going to look at Matthew. Then we're going to look at Luke's account. Then we're going to park over in Mark. So go in your Bible, if you would, to Luke chapter 8. And in Luke chapter 8, again, it's the big storm, right after the big storm. Verse 26. We're going to read two verses. So they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes. Well, Matthew said it was the Gadarenes. Luke says it's the Gerasenes. Which, which one is it? Keep reading. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. How many men? How many men? Matthew said there were how many? Luke talks about how many. Anybody else have a problem with that? Keep reading. For a long time, he'd been homeless and naked, living in a cemetery outside the town. And this is my favorite story in the entire Bible because it talks about two naked dudes. <laughs> and as a youth pastor, I think that's awesome, right? You, you probably not, they're, they're destroying the Bible. Two naked, do you say naked or naked? I, we're in the South, do we say naked? How many of you guys say naked, raise your hand, naked? Naked people, raise your hand, no. <laughs> <laughs> naked people, raise your hand. All right, we're about split 50-50, just checking. I'm testing the crowd. Uh, they lived in a cemetery and were so violent that no one uh, could go. Oh, excuse me. They, uh, for a long time, had been homeless and naked, living in a cemetery outside of town. Now we're going to go to Mark chapter 5, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. He agrees with Luke. It's the region of the Gerasenes. Matthew had said it's the Gadarenes. Uh, verse 2, when Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from a cemetery to meet him. Uh, how many men did Mark say there was? Mark talks about how many? One. Matthew says there's how many? And Luke says, talks about how many? All right. Keep going. Uh, cemetery to meet him. This man lived among the burial caves and could no longer be restrained even with a chain. And I had pity on this guy. What kind of a person lives not only in... 
they would dig caves into the side of the mountain and then they would dig shelves in the side of those caves and they would put the dead bodies up in those shelves and this dude would sleep up in those shelves. Who does that? Nobody who's thinking clearly. Nobody in, nobody hopes to end up this way. No little boy says, someday I hope I'm a homeless, naked, crazy man living in a cemetery, sleeping in the shelves with dead, rotting bones. Nobody grows up and wants to have a life that's completely filled with chaos. So it makes me ask, what kind of things happened to this guy? What kind of things had he done or what kind of things had been done to him that got him to this place? Like, I, I'm feeling bad for him. This is, he's got a dad. He's got a mom. He might have brothers and sisters. Maybe he was married before he lost his mind. God forbid he has kids, but do you think they're proud of their dad? Do you see what I'm saying? This guy has completely lost everything. He's got nothing. Even people who have nothing have more than them because at least they have their thinking, their mind. He's lost even that. Keep reading. He uh, could no longer be restrained even with a chain and whenever he was put into chains and shackles as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. Now this really happened in history. So now I'm wondering, who was the guy who had to try to handcuff a naked, homeless, demon-possessed dude? And what bet did he lose to have to do that? Can you imagine those guys in that village? Hey, listen, we got to do something about that homeless naked dude. He's like bringing our values down in our communities, <laughs> scaring the little kids. I mean, we got to get them. Yeah, you're right. We do. Well, why don't you, you get them? I don't know what that argument was like, but can you imagine that guy showing up to work the next day with a black guy, arm in a sling, and say, what happened to you? Uh... Home invasion, and I defended my, shut up. You got jumped by the naked dude again, didn't you? I told you, just stop going there, right? But you won't listen. You must like getting jumped by those guys. I don't know, right? <laughs> if that would have, I just wouldn't have been the guy. I'd agreed, somebody needs to tie these guys up. I would just vote for you to do it. No one was strong enough, the Bible says, to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Man, the story just gets worse. He's naked. He's homeless. He's demon-possessed. He lives in a burial cave, sleeping up with rotting skeleton and rotting bones. And on top of that, he screams through the night, cutting himself with rocks. If this is a family member of yours, or if you went to school with him or played Little League, this isn't anything you laugh at. This is something that breaks your heart. You know what I mean? Every time he comes up in conversation, you look at his mom and you say, I'm sorry. We're praying for you guys. That's, that's the situation. Keep reading. When Jesus still was some distance away, the man saw him, ran to him, and bowed down low before him and with a shriek. He screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. Because Jesus had already said to the man, come out of the man, you evil spirit. So then after they said, don't torture me, Jesus demanded, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged Jesus again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. Why Jesus agreed to that, I have no idea, but he does. 
Now, we're going to find out in a minute that the guys who are taking care of the pigs go into the town and tell everybody what had happened, not just with the pigs, but everything that had been happening with Jesus and these demon-possessed guys. So the only way that they could have told everybody in the village what had happened was because they had what? They had seen it. So they're watching all of this happen, right? Which makes sense to me, too. If they're up on the side of a hill and this storm is so bad that fishermen are afraid, this is a storm that's probably affecting the towns closest to the shore. If these, what do you call a pig shepherd? Pigshirts? I don't know what you would call those guys. I know that's not a word, but it, somebody who works with pigs, come tell me what you are after the service that would help me, but they're, they're watching it when Jesus and the disciples land at the shore there. The Bible already says that that was a place that nobody from the villages would have ever gone to. So you know what they were thinking when they saw the boat pull up, right? <laughs> Tourists. <laughs> nobody else would have done this. So if one of the pig shepherds saw it, you know he called his other buddies because he knows what's about to happen. Hey, <laughs> come on, this is gonna be awesome. Look at these 13 dudes getting out of this boat. Wait for it. Wait for it. Ah! Right? And then you watch them stop. Actually, the one in front with the purple sash, he keeps walking. The other 12 dudes, they're freaking out, trying to get back in the boat, stumbling over each other. When they recognize that the two dudes running at them are naked, these two dudes up on the hill are just dying laughing. The Bible says they fall down and start worshiping. Jesus is having a conversation with them. They'd never seen anybody have a conversation with the two crazy, naked, bloody dudes who are demon-possessed, Right? So they're completely intrigued by the whole thing. And then Jesus, the Bible says right here, so Jesus gave them permission and the evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. So while these guys up on the hill are watching this, we'll call them Joe and Jim, Bob, I don't, whatever. Jim Bob, that's a Texas name. Is it? They're up on a hill. And they're watching the demon-possessed guys having a conversation with Jesus and said, hey, listen, if you're going to kick us out, send us out into those pigs right up there. These guys are up on the hill. They see the demon-possessed guy point at them. They duck. You know what you would do? What would you do? You wouldn't go, hey, I'm right here. <laughs> they're naked demon-possessed dudes. You're going to duck. Then Jesus goes, go. And unbeknownst to them, 2,000 demons fly up the hill and enter their pigs. At what point did the pig shepherds know something was wrong? Their pigs are just rooting around and... The roots, whatever, right on the ground, and demons are now filling their pigs, and I wonder if there's any tells, if there are any signs that something was wrong. Did a pig look at them, like right in the face? Moo. Meow. <laughs> <laughs> Did they bark? I don't know. Then 2,000 of them run off the cliff. Joe looks at Bob and goes, dude, we've been fired. Right? <laughs> we just lost everything. They go back into the town. That's what we're going to see right here. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and surrounding countryside, spreading the news. As they ran, of course they did. Now, no one's going to believe their story about they just can't walk into the town and say, hey, can you imagine going to their boss? Hey, remember your pigs? What do you mean, remember my pigs? Here's what happened. Uh, so people rushed out to see what had happened, and the crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who'd been demon-possessed by the legion of demons. See, Matthew doesn't tell us that part. Matthew tells us that we're, there were two guys, so because we know that they're, the scripture's inspired by God, that's at least my bias, and the stories don't contradict, they complement. Matthew tells us there were two so that we know there were how many? Two. But Matthew doesn't give us the rest of the story. Matthew just says that there were two guys who were possessed by demons, and then the town asked Jesus to leave. They don't give this part. Mark and Luke are focusing on the one guy who everybody, when they get there, sees. 
Now, there were two guys who met Jesus, two people who had experience with Jesus, but in the time that it took for the pig shepherds to go get everybody and come back, by the time they came back and saw Jesus, only one of them was there. And my question is, where's the other dude? Just because you know who Jesus is, you've had an experience with Jesus. Are you with me? Doesn't mean you're a follower of Jesus unless you're actually following Jesus. Right? So that's, that's why they focused on the one, because the other dude never made it to the end. He was gone. Hey, thanks for the religious buzz. I'm out. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. And those who had seen what had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. And that's where Matthew ends the story. He didn't give us the part about the guy sitting there clothed in his right mind. He just gives us the part about the, the town asking him to leave. Then Mark and Luke both, since they're focusing on the one guy who was still sitting at, at the feet of Jesus, gives us the rest of the story in verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who'd been demon-possessed begged to go with him. He said, if you're getting in the boat, I want to get in the boat. Wherever you go, if you're going to stay in town, I'll stay in town. If you're going there, I'm going there. If you're going here, I'll go here. I'm with you, dude, for the rest of my life. I got nothing else. I'm all yours for the rest of my life. All that I have, all that I am is at your disposal. Bro, if you're getting in the boat, I want in the boat too. And here's what Jesus said. But Jesus said to him, no. And I wonder if that was hard for him to hear. Listen, I just want to be where you're at. If you're, these other 12 dudes get to get in the boat with you, let me get in the boat with you. No, I don't want you. And I wonder if for a quick moment there was some confusion, some hurt. Why? Why, why can't I? Why? why? So this dude who had no purpose, no direction in his life is rescued by Jesus. And here's, here's what he says. Go home to your family and tell them, Everything that the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the 10 towns. Some of your Bibles right there might say Decapolis. And it's the region of the 10 towns. The people from one of the towns were called Gadarenes. The people from one of the other towns were called Gerasenes. Are you with me? And the fact is they could have said eight other individual different towns and it still wouldn't have been a contradiction. It was from the region of the ten towns. It's my opinion that the first guy who left was from the Gadarenes. And the other guy, since he's mentioned twice by Mark and Luke, and they both say Gerasenes, that dude was from that town. But we don't know. I'm just saying it could have been any other town. So all along, the struggle that I was having in my faith had a completely rational explanation. I just didn't take the time to look. The cool thing is, so the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region, began to proclaim the great things that God had done for him, and everyone was amazed at what he had told them. And the next time that Jesus comes back to the region of Decapolis, the next time we read about Jesus coming back in the Bible is the feeding of the 4,000. How do those 4,000 people know to show up when Jesus came back? How do they know? Who told them? One crazy, bloody, naked man. Changed the lives. 4,000 people. If I'd come into Decapolis and said, God's going to use one guy to change the world, and you get to vote on who you think it's going to be, would any of them have picked the crazy naked guy? Yes or no? No, but when Jesus showed up, who did he pick? Who did he pick? You just don't want to say crazy naked guy. <laughs> but that's who he picked. And here's what I know. Jesus is attracted to people who are unattractive. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking, 
what in the world am I doing here? How did I end up in church? Maybe you lost a bet. I don't know. And the price you had to pay was you had to come to church with your friend that you lost a bet to, or you're trying to make your wife happy, or your world's falling apart. You're like, there's no way in the world God could love me because of the things that have been done to me. If God loved me, then why did all that happen to me? The things you've done to others. And what I know for a fact from this story is that if there was only one person that Jesus was going to hang out with today after this service, it really would be you. And you need to know that. That the unattractive parts of your life do not keep him from loving you. There's only one person that Jesus showed up that day to take care of. Jesus knew what was going to happen. It wasn't a failed trip. It wasn't a failed mission. He knew there was only one guy that was going to receive him that day, and that dude was worth going through the storm to find. And God will go through a whole lot of junk to rescue you too, which brings me to the second lesson I learned. Jesus rescues people to rescue people. Loved people, love people. Forgiven people, forgive people. You think... Man, pray all you want for God to send somebody to help your brother-in-law come to faith in Jesus. God already sent somebody. Dude, it's you. Pray all you want for your neighbors to come to faith. For your friends at work to find Jesus. Pray that all you want. Pray, definitely pray. But God's already answered the prayer by putting you right smack dab in the middle of your company. It's you. And you've been disqualifying yourself because of your crazy, naked, chaotic, bloody life. And I'm telling you, that's the reason God picked you. Because you can help connect him to other people who are naked, crazy, and bleeding. He'll use the dysfunction of your past as a platform on which he will be glorified. If you would just volunteer, stand up. You don't have to know everything, but you know something. And what you know was enough to get you where you're at. Yes? Then what you know is enough to help them get to at least where you're at. Yes? So I don't know who you are. I don't know how religious you are. I don't know who's super Christian and who's faking super Christian and who's an atheist. And I've got to believe in a church this side, there's atheists in here too. And God's not afraid of your questions and God's not up in heaven freaking out because you don't believe in him. What am I going to do? He don't believe in me. You know what I mean? I'll give you time. Maybe your prayer is, God, if you're really there, show me. Move me. Help me feel like you're there. God, I'm willing for you to change my mind if you'll change my mind. Maybe you're just saying that there's too much junk in my past for God to use me. God would never want me. And I want to... You've never been this bad off. And if God can forgive and rescue this guy from the things in his past, I promise you God can rescue you and forgive you for yours too. You've just never asked. Maybe today your point is to just simply humbly ask God, God, forgive me, save me, rescue me from my sin. Rescue me. Heal me, fix me, take away my pain, my hate. My bitterness, take it away, make me yours. Or you're a follower of Jesus, but honestly... Your butt's been on the bench way too long. It's time for you to get in the game. There's people that love you, that care about you, that want to know what you think because they care about you. They don't care about Pastor Steve. If he talked to them, they'd blow him off. They don't know him. They know you. And I know who God sent to make a difference. 
And it's this room full of crazy, naked, bloody, broken, hurting, dysfunctional, seriously flawed, but unfathomably loved people who can be completely forgiven if they ask. If you would, please pray with me. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would soften our heart, convict us of our flawedness. God, everybody in this room is broken. There's nobody here who's perfect. We've all, we've all become guilty. and That's why we need you. We're incapable of fixing what's most broken in us, and what's most broken in, in us is not our poverty, it's not our joblessness, it's not our dysfunctional marriage or dysfunctional relationships with our parents. What's most broken in us is our hearts. God, no matter how much good we'll ever do, we can never become innocent, and that's why we need somebody who was innocent to trade places with us, and that's why we need Jesus. Thank you, God, for showing up in human history, taking our spanking from the Father, God, so that we wouldn't have to. I pray, God, that we would right now, wherever, we at, wherever we're at, would call on you to forgive us, to rescue us from the consequences of our sin would accept that your resurrection from the dead with new life was given to us to give us a new life also. Help us to ask for that new life, to commit to following Jesus with the rest of our lives. For those of us, God, who've already come to that place, forgive us for our laziness or our fear or our lack of courage. And when those moments come when our friends bring up questions about faith, help us to boldly step into those moments, trusting that you've led us into this moment. And we ask this in your great name and for your glory. Amen. Amen.